Good morning. We have quite a few announcements to cover before we begin today. And for the first one, you have to promise me that there will not be a mass exodus when I make this announcement. Joe, this goes for you too. There are no Norwegian heart waffles by the coffee this morning. You'll have to wait till afterwards. All right. The egg extravaganza. There are two egg sighting weekends. Kesslinger, Saturday, March 9th from 9 to noon. And North Aurora, Saturday, March 16th from 9 to 10. Be thinking about who you can invite. And you can see all the details and register at chapelstreet.church forward slash news. The registration is open for the 2024 Women's Conference to be held March 16 at the Kesslinger campus. And this says, nothing will change your life like opening God's word. But it can be difficult to figure out what it looks like to move to a deeper experience of the goodness of God. Lima Abu Jamra, Bible teacher and author, will help us explore what it looks like to dig into the word in real life and grow our awareness of his presence. Again, chapelstreet.church forward slash news. And the next one is going to be a challenge for you. You'll need to focus as there will be slides going at the same time I'm making this announcement. So you have to pay attention to both. And there will be a quiz. So we are celebrating the successful performance of Shrek the Musical Junior by our performing arts ministry, Elevate, led by a team of staff and volunteers and comprised of 175 young actors. The event drew more than 2,000 people over four performances these past two weekends. The following director's note was included in the playbill for the show. It states, in preparation for this performance, the Shrek cast memorized 1 Peter 2.9, which reads, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Did you notice the word peculiar? It's referring to the fact that those who follow Jesus are set apart for God's purposes, which means they won't always look like the world around them. Each one of the kids on stage is called with a purpose to shine his marvelous light. It is our prayer that as you watch the performance, you would be in awe of God's creativity on display as we wave the flag as his chosen royal and peculiar people. And we have a slide, uh, Ways to Give. And I want to thank you for your generosity and state that if you are a guest here today, please do not feel any obligation to give. We welcome you as our guest. These announcements and more can be found at chapelstreet.church forward slash news. And now, would you rise with me, if you're able, for the call to worship. Mm-hmm. 
I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate.
Thank you, choir. I know we typically pray for those from this South Street uh, congregation, but um, I'm going to expand that prayer this morning. There are a number of people from Kesslinger and North Aurora and Mill Creek who have been in and out of the hospital in recent weeks, in the last 10 days or so, and a couple that we have uh, facing surgery this coming week. So I will pray for each one. Would you join me now in prayer? Lord, we lift up Brian Harris, uh, son of Carol, as he is in rehab at Marion Joy following uh, an infection in his hip. We pray for his full recovery. And Lord, we ask your blessing and your protection over Mary Bradley, who was in the hospital twice this past week. We lift up uh, Doug Ruth, and we praise you for the tumor that was removed successfully and that he is home and doing very well. We praise your name for that. We lift up Rick Stover as he adjusts to his new handicap. He lost a finger this past week in a table saw, so we ask your blessing on him and uh, speedy recovery. We think of Chuck Peterson today, who suffered a bout of pancreatitis. He was released from the hospital yesterday to be home again. We pray that you would watch over him and restore his health. We lift up Steve Lemon, uh, who is currently in the hospital with pulmonary embolisms. And coming up in this week, we pray for Lynn Enns, who has a hip surgery scheduled for tomorrow. We ask for uh, skill for the surgeons and wisdom for his entire team. We pray that that successful surgery would be swift and that healing would be swift as well. And then Tuesday morning, we lift up Dave Van Norman, who will have three stents put in place, and it's expected to be a complicated surgery. So, Lord, we lift him up. We lift up his surgical team. We pray for strength, and we pray for healing and a successful surgery. Lord, hear our prayer today as we uh, pray with and for members of our extended congregation. Amen.
That was kind of cool, wasn't it? That was... Got distracted a little bit. Hey, it's good to be here. Uh, my name is Joe Scavato, one of the pastors here. It's been a while since I've been here at the South Street Campus, and it is a joy to be back with you in worship today. Uh, you know, years ago, there was a, a nationwide poll that was taken that asked people about the most meaningful words that someone could say to them, about the phrases that, upon hearing them from a family member or a friend or someone that was meaningful in their life, brought the most joy or satisfaction or fulfillment in their hearts. The survey revealed the three most significant phrases that you can say to a person are, in order, I love you, I forgive you, and dinner's ready. (laughs) Don't you love that? I love you, I forgive you, and dinner's ready. Now, if it were me, the order might be switched a little bit. I think number three might be number one. I can only assume that number four was you were right and I was wrong, uh, or maybe these people were less petty than I am. But there's something about that, isn't there? These, These three simple phrases that speak to the needs of our body and of our soul. I love you, I forgive you, dinner's ready. In fact, many people have pointed out that in some ways, these three phrases are the embodiment of Jesus' ministry, of the message that he came to share with the people in the world. I love you to the point of entering into life as one of you. I forgive you, and I will prove it on the cross. Dinner's ready. Would you come sit with me? Would you join me? Would you be in fellowship and community? Would you be nourished at my table? This is the message of Jesus that we'll be hearing today as we begin a new series that you just saw introduced called Unrecognized King. The idea behind this series is that when you study the four Gospels of Jesus, a few things become clear. First, that Jesus did not come to earth simply to be a good teacher and not simply to heal people, and not simply to model a life of love and kindness. He came to be our king, and to usher in a new kind of kingdom. Matthew 4 tells us that this was one of the defining features of Jesus' preaching. His message was to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The second thing that you notice, though, is that over and over, those that interacted with Jesus, those that followed him, those that hated him, even those that loved him, over and over didn't understand. They did not recognize the kind of king that he came to be. That as Jesus revealed himself, his identity, his purpose, his mission, one of the great tragedies of his story is just how many people missed out on the kind of life that he came to offer them. That Jesus was, and still is today, an unrecognized king. And so, each week we're going to look at one of those types of stories. And what we're hoping to do in this series, which is somehow going to take us all the way through Easter Sunday, it's hard to believe we're almost there, is we're going to examine King Jesus showing up, offering love and forgiveness and a seat at the table, We're going to examine the responses of the crowds, the disciples, the religious leaders of the day, and we're going to examine ourselves. And we are going to ask ourselves the question, are we prepared? Do we recognize the presence of the King in our own lives today? 
So today we're going to look at the first of these stories. If you have a Bible with you, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 6. That's where we'll be spending most of our time today. And what we're going to see in this particular story uh, are three things, the people's hunger, the king's offer, and a divided response. We'll start with the people's hunger. Uh, John 6, we'll pick up the story in verse 25. It says this, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Back when we were uh, living in Indiana, one of the go-to date spots for my wife and I was a place called Texas Roadhouse. Has anybody been to Texas Roadhouse? Some of us. There's a a picture. of It it, uh, looks very Texan uh, if you've never been there before. It's kind of a uh, casual country-style steakhouse, and it's a weird thing because you walk in uh, and immediately you walk on peanut shells. And they have this like giant barrel of peanuts in the corner. And it's kind of fun because my wife is allergic to peanuts. And so it's like dinner with danger on the side. It's very exciting. <laughs> and so we go to Texas Roadhouse. The main reason that we go to this place is for the dinner rolls. If you have never been to Texas Roadhouse, you need to go just for these rolls. I don't know how to describe how good they are other than that I want to write poetry about them. Like they are... They are so good. They, we, we got to the point where we would go there so often that we would ask for another basket as they would bring us the first one. Like, we know we're going to need more than what you're giving us. And sometimes we get to that point where there was only, like, one left. And, you know, as the husband, I'm supposed to, like, offer it to my wife to, like, be a selfless husband. And I was like, nope, every person for themselves, you get your own rolls. And we would eat so much of this bread that what would happen is the food that we actually ordered would come, and we weren't even hungry. It was like, just box that up, give us more rolls, and we'll be good to go. But this is the type of hunger that our story is about. We see this crowd of people flocking to Jesus, looking for bread. And quickly, just a few pieces of context as we look at this conversation between Jesus and the crowds. First, just before this text that I just read, Jesus has just performed two of his most famous miracles. He has just fed the 5,000 This incredible act of provision for 5,000 men plus thousands more women and children. And then immediately after that, he walks on water, calming the seas and the fears of his disciples. 
And it's important that we see this, that for any first century Jewish person that experienced this or that read John's account of what Jesus has just done, they immediately would have thought of the Exodus. And more specifically, Moses. Moses, who God empowered to split the Red Sea in their escape from the Egyptians. Moses, who led the people of God through the desert where he provided bread, manna from heaven every morning, this act of provision and sustaining grace. And so what happens right before this text that I read you is that the people are starting to figure out that there's something about this Jesus, that there's something about him worth following, something about him that reminds us of what came before. In fact, we see this in John chapter 6 in verse 14. They say, when they saw the sign that Jesus had done, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. That was actually a reference back to the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, Moses says that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So the people are talking and saying, maybe this is the prophet. Maybe this is the one, because this guy is reenacting and reliving the story of Moses. He has proven his power over the water. He has shown his ability to provide. And so they track him down. They chase him across the the seas, and they come to him. And look again at Jesus' words in John chapter 6. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. This is the second piece of context that we need to understand, that according to John, there is a difference between a sign and a miracle, and Jesus performs signs. We saw this earlier in verse 14 when the people saw the sign. It's here in verse 26. You are seeking me not because you saw signs. John ends his gospel in chapter 20 with kind of a summary, a purpose statement of why he wrote this thing in the first place. We read this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, John Piper is a pastor and an author, and he described a sign this way, uh, that, that we should picture the glory of God as this incredible, dazzling, bright light that you kind of cannot help but look at and be in awe of. You know how you can look at a campfire for like an hour and not get sick of it? Picture that times a million. And that is the glory of God. And and he said that that when Jesus performs a sign, when he does something like feeding the 5,000, it's like the glory of God beams down, like this bright light beams down onto earth in this specific moment in time. There's this intersection between heaven and earth happening in this moment when he makes bread appear and transform and multiply. And the point is, is that God is doing that. Jesus has done this, not so that we would focus at this moment in time, but so that we would trace the beam back to the glory. That we would see this as a sign that something that points us back to something greater. That Jesus, when he performs miracles, 
when he feeds thousands of people with one boy's lunch, when he heals the sick, when he raises the dead. He does these things not just because he is a nice guy who does cool things, not just because he has love and compassion on those specific people, although he does. He's doing that for a greater purpose. He is doing that so we would trace the beam back to the glory, that we would be in awe of who God is, that we would understand him more. And this is Jesus' point in this conversation, that this crowd, this group of people did the exact right thing. They chased Jesus down. They sought him out. And yet they missed the point completely because they were not interested in the person of God, simply the power of God. They didn't care who Jesus was. They just wanted to be fed. And this is the point, that the provision of God that we see so clearly in this story and throughout the Scripture and in your life and in mine, all of it is meant to point us back to something more. All of it is a sign. Any comfort that you have, any security, even the things that we take for granted, there's a reason that these people chased Jesus down for a loaf of bread. They were marked by poverty and oppression by the Romans. Everything that we have is to point us towards a greater reality, to remind us of the goodness and the glory of God. And so what happens oftentimes in our Christian circles is that we have the language for this, but sometimes we don't always think through what it is we're saying. We say things like, man, God has blessed me with my life, blessed me with this home. He has given me this job or given me my family that I love so much. And all of that is true. But all of it is a sign to point you to something greater. God has blessed you with your home to point you towards your greater home. In John 14, Jesus says that his father's house has many rooms and he is going to prepare a place for us. God did bless you with your job, not just to do your work, but his work to make his kingdom known. God has blessed you with your kids or your grandkids or your family or your community to show you something about the perfect love of your heavenly Father. This is why this matters, because I think this is one of the great temptations of our 21st century suburban American life, that we might be tempted to follow the crowd and to simply put our trust or give our hope or build our life on the gifts rather than on our relationship with the giver. It is possible to be so consumed and so filled with what this world can offer, with the comforts and the entertainment and the distractions, that we fill ourselves up on bread and we are too full when the real meal shows up. That when we have an opportunity to experience the presence and the glory of God, we find that we have lost our appetite. Paul talks about this in Colossians chapter 3. He says, To set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. 
And Jesus is saying, more than you seek my blessings and more than you seek my power, would you just seek me? My presence and the glory that I have to show you. This is what he has come to give. That brings us to the king's offer. Let's pick up our story once more in verse uh, 34. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I'm curious, have you ever invited someone to, to be a part of something that you know that they would enjoy or you know would be good for them, but they just refuse to take you up on it? Maybe parents, they, you've experienced something like that. Uh, my son is two years old now, and he recently decided that he is just done with bath time. He used to love it. He now hates it. Um, and anytime he hears the water turn on, he just like runs and screams no and tries to hide somewhere in my house. It's super fun. Um, and the thing that frustrates me is that I know that he likes bath time. Like, it's good for him, it makes him clean, but also he really enjoys it. He loves his bath toys and, like, just splashing around. The other night I was giving him a bath, and he just, like, splashed water right into my face. It was super fun. And so the, the only thing that he hates more than having to take a bath is being taken out of the bathtub. And so bath time at the Scavato house begins and ends with agony. He's a very poetic child. It's very interesting. But it's frustrating because... Every time I ask him if he's ready for a bath, if he wants to experience not just being made clean, but experience the joy that is ahead of him, he answers no. And, and I wonder if this is the frustration that Jesus feels in this moment. As we see this in verse 35, he looks at the crowds and he tells them, I am the bread of life. And as he does so, he's declaring two things to be true. First, He's declaring his identity. This is the first of what scholars call the seven great I am statements in the Gospel of John. We see these throughout John's writings that Jesus will use this phrase, I am, and then uh, tell his disciples or those that were following him something about who he is. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and so on. And, And again, upon hearing that phrase, it would have been just incredibly clear to his Jewish audience what he was saying. Immediately, they would have gone back again to Exodus, and in particular, Exodus chapter 3. This is something that they would have known by heart. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so Jesus, in kind of co-opting this phrase for himself, is telling us something about who he is. That he's not just a teacher, not just a healer, not just a good person who does good things, but rather he is the Son of God. He is human and divine. 
So he declares who he is, and then second, he declares what he has come to do, that he has not come simply to give bread, but to be bread. That he is the true provider, the fulfillment of what God did through Moses. He has come to give not temporary, but eternal life. In other words, what Jesus recognizes is what we must recognize as well. That somewhere deep within us, there is a longing, a desire, a hope that the greatest meal or the highest experiences or the, the greatest amount of wealth could never bring us. That somewhere within us, we long to experience peace in an anxious world. That deep down, our desire is to belong, to be accepted to be known fully and loved unconditionally. That somewhere within us we yearn for a greater purpose, to be part of something bigger than ourselves, to hope. Hope for the future, hope for healing, hope for restoration. There's something that cries out when we see or when we experience injustice that says it should not be this way. Jesus recognizes that somewhere within each one of us there is a hunger, not of our body, but of our soul. And there is nothing that we can summon within ourselves. There's no amount of self-discipline. There's no experience of pleasure. There's no amount of wealth. There's nothing that can satisfy that here on this earth. There's a quote uh, that I uh, appreciate from Jim Carrey, who's one of the most famous actors in the world, that uh, kind of speaks to this idea. He says, I think everybody should get all the money they want and get all the fame they want and do everything they ever wanted so they can see that attaining things they want is not the answer. And Jesus is saying, this is the hunger that I have come to satisfy. This is the bread that I offer, the life that I give, the sustenance that I provide. Not a physical meal, but a spiritual reality. Life. Life to the full. Life with hope and peace and purpose and love baked into its very DNA. This is the offer of the king. This is why uh, throughout the history of the church, fasting has been a really important part of people's spiritual growth. Uh, if fasting is new to you, or maybe it's been a while since you've uh, done it, it could be a great practice for you to try this week. Fasting is simply abstaining from something, typically food, and it's uh, doing that in order to focus our attention on our true hunger and our true dependence on God. It's kind of this way of physically praying with our whole bodies. To declare, God, I need you more than I need food. Jesus says this in John chapter 4. He says that I have food to eat that you do not know about. And this is what fasting does. It reminds me of my true hunger for God. Now, fasting isn't for everyone. Uh, my wife is 34 weeks pregnant. I'm not going to ask her to fast, both for her safety and also my own safety. 
Fasting may not be for you, and that's okay, but this is the beauty of what we get to do, that it reminds us of something that is so easy to forget in our world today, that life is fragile and so am I, that I am more dependent on God than I often like to admit, and that is a good thing, and it is good for me to remember that. For some of us, even going without one meal or several meals will serve as this picture in our body of a reality of our soul. That we need God, not just once a week, but every day. And as my body feels the effects of a lack of nutrition, not to the point of something dangerous happening, I am simply reminded that just as my body needs food, my soul needs nourishment in the word and in prayer and in the disciplines of community and serving and fasting and solitude, and the list goes on. And this is the invitation that Jesus gives, to be filled with the bread of life. That we would experience the three simple phrases that he has come to offer I love you, I forgive you, and dinner's ready. Would you be nourished in my presence? That brings us to the last thing I want to show you from our text today, uh, a divided response. Uh, I want to show you just uh, from these words that Jesus gave, some of the different responses from the crowd that day. We'll pick it up in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And then verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, if we had time to read through all 30 verses that were left in this chapter, what we would see is Jesus continuing to unpack this teaching and this reality that he is the bread of life, that life only comes from him. And he uses this language that it is only in eating his flesh and drinking his blood that we are given life. And for us, we can see this clearly through the lens of the communion table. That when we come to the table, this is what we remember of Jesus giving up his life and his body for ours. I heard a pastor put it this way. He said that Jesus is the only bread that is willing to break for you. And what he's saying makes sense. But imagine if you heard these words the first time that Jesus said them. If you were in that crowd and all of a sudden this person is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. That'd be a little weird. And it makes sense that for many, they grumbled and they questioned and they walked away. In fact, one of the criticisms and and even reasons for persecution in the early church is that they thought they, they were cannibals because of language like this. This is not the type of preaching they teach you in seminary. And Jesus must have known that this was going to be the result. But 
Look with me to the last few verses here that we'll look at today. Verse 66, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, twelve disciples, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Don't you love that response from Peter, who doesn't always get it right, but here he is just so spot on. Jesus, what you have just said to us makes absolutely no sense, and we don't know what to do with it. Where else would we go? Who can do what you have done? Who can heal? Who has your wisdom? Who can nourish not just our bodies, but also our souls? Who offers belonging and purpose and hope and peace like you do? How could we leave you? We have nowhere else to go. And I love this because this is a picture of what faith does. Part of faith is allowing hard news to be good news. Faith allows the hard news of Jesus to be good news. This is what the crowds failed to grasp. They liked Jesus, the manna giver. They liked Jesus, the new Moses. They liked Jesus, the provider, the one who was going to give victory over the Romans. In fact, John tells us that after he feeds the 5,000, he had to escape because the people were going to force him to become their king. They wanted Jesus the Savior, but they did not want Jesus the Lord. And this is the temptation that we must recognize in our own hearts as well, that the good news of Jesus is not just the parts of the message that we like. I like the Jesus that forgives me, that gives second chances, that offers grace. I don't know how I feel about it when he does it to those that have hurt me. I like the Jesus that cares for all the nations, but I don't know about all this stuff for caring about them myself. I like the Jesus that offers unconditional love. But when he tells me to deny myself and pick up my cross and surrender every single day, This, though, is our hope for this series, that as we look at this unrecognized king, as we consider the works and the words of Jesus throughout his ministry, as we observe the reactions from the crowds and the disciples and the people of his day, that we would recognize our own response to him as well. That we would recognize not just the Jesus that we want to have or that we remake into our own image, but the one that has revealed himself as the only way, truth, and life. The one who comes not just as our Savior, but as our Lord. Our hope is that as a church, the hard news, the difficult teachings of Jesus would still be good news to us. And that the words of Peter would be ours as well. Jesus, not everything you call us to is easy, and we don't always understand. But where else would we go? And so, Father, that is our prayer today that you would continue to show up in our lives and that we would recognize the presence of the King. 
Lord, we praise you for sustaining us, for providing for our needs, not just our physical needs, but, Lord, the hunger of our souls. Lord, I pray now that we would be open as we approach Easter Sunday, not just to the words that we want to hear, but, Lord, to the entire good news of your gospel and that we would surrender to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. now receive the benediction from Romans chapter 15 verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.